Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that equips you with the latest insights and strategies to propel your career in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and excited to have you join me for another enlightening leadership conversation. Now, if you're a mission-driven leader who sometimes feels like you have more passion than answers for the cause that drives you, you're in for a treat. In this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Vichy Jaganothan, an entrepreneur, strategist, and social change leader who has applied innovative ideas in unlikely and, frankly, under-resourced settings. This is what she did in founding the Rural Opportunity Institute in eastern North Carolina. Now, Vichy delves into how building and relying on basic systems and design thinking brought clarity to the challenges she faced and allowed her small organization to stay focused on its mission. Now, she discusses some of the biggest challenges to running a rural nonprofit and the creative solutions she found when building her team, her volunteers, and her board of directors. Now, don't miss Vici's insights on building a global fundraising strategy, no matter where you are located. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Vici Jaganothan. Vici, thank you for joining me on the path. Yeah, excited to be here. Well, I'm excited as well. You and I have had this conversation in motion for many months now. And we share some Eastern North Carolina uh, activity, and certainly you're doing wonderful work there. But you've had work in multiple settings, which I think brings together the wonderful leadership you have now. And and so I want to talk about, because we've got listeners that are certainly in urban as well as rural environments. You can speak to both, but in particular, you can speak about the Rural Opportunity Institute. And of course, as the title implies, you understand rural communities better than most. Um Let's start with this point. You've made an interesting and I think compelling statement about letting your community take the lead as a nonprofit leader. What do you mean by that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think uh, it's actually, for me at least, not as complicated as it might sound. A lot of it is just leading with humility. When we first started Rural Opportunity Institute, or ROI, it was very clear to me that I did not have all the answers. There was a lot of things that I wasn't sure about. Um, and so I think just starting with admitting that to myself and then being open to asking for help is really what opened the door. So a lot of it was just sort of acknowledging that a lot of times the community or the people who have li- more lived experience have a lot more wisdom and answers than than I did. And then a lot of, of people who are coming into a community might. And rather than trying to fake it or act like we know everything. It just kind of came from a place of being like, I definitely need other people's help to figure this out. And so let me start by building relationships. And I think from there, some really powerful leaders emerged, right. um, just people that I would want to be following in the work regardless. And it was pretty natural and easy to create opportunities for them to take the lead on decision-making or providing ins- insights or things like that. And so yeah, I think it would have been actually more so upstream, you know, swimming upstream to try, try to do it myself rather than just going with the river of leaders and insight that's already there. So well put. And you and I both know there, there are a lot of talented nonprofit leaders that have expertise. And I think that we come sometimes in is a top down direction or leadership, isn't there? We We tell the communities we're serving kind of what they need. And clearly that's not the right direction to do it. And so I, 
talk about what exactly is the Rural Opportunity Institute and how you've been able to bring those voices and those leaders into the forefront. Yeah, so ROI as an organization, we are now about six and a third years old, um, which is kind of crazy to say <laughs> out loud. Celebrating the third birthday, yeah. Third birthday, <laughs> I'm like, wow, yeah, time is moving along, but uh, still a pretty small team. We're a team of five now, um, but we operate specifically in rural Eastern North Carolina and really aim to support different residents as well as organizations in the community to interrupt generational cycles of trauma. And so a lot of what we're doing is listening and understanding where people have experienced repeated pain or friction points when they're accessing various government services, and then trying to use tools like human-centered design or other approaches to think about ways that systems like police or schools or health or any of those could be more restorative and less punitive. Um, and really at its core, a lot of that arose from things that community members said. And so from right. the beginning, we kind of originally got a lot of community input, but in terms of now sort of formalizing that community leadership, we since 2018 have had a community accountability board. And so that group is a set of residents that were nominated by their peers. So we had kind of an open community nomination process for board members. Right. And uh, that group meets with us now quarterly at the at least sometimes a little more often to help advise us on you know our strategic direction uses the usage of resources decision making and that's like the ultimate backstop that makes sure that everything we're doing stays aligned with the interests of the community yeah it's fantastic and i'd love to unpack that further because that you literally have implemented a process to assure that you're getting community voices in your ongoing activity so uh, talk about your journey that led to ROI, and then how did you end up in Eastern North Carolina? Yeah, yeah it's definitely not a linear path. Uh, so for anybody listening who feels that way, we you are not alone. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but at least for me, I mean, I started out uh, just like a little bit of personal background. My parents are uh, first-generation immigrants from India, and so they came to the U.S. after after they met in grad school. Um, so me and my siblings, we were born in New York, but you know, my parents didn't grow up here and we had a lot of trust in the educational system here. Like, I think a lot of, of immigrant families, we kind of saw that as like the ticket right. to success here. Right. And so that was really like a lot of my primary goal and upbringing as a kid was like, do super well in school, try to get into a really good college get the you know best job you possibly can. And so I ended up uh, studying electrical engineering at Princeton wow. in undergrad and graduated right into the recession in 2010. <laughs> yeah. And it was surprisingly hard to find a job. And I was kind of, you know, feeling a little bit off track around that point and ended up uh, applying to grad school and Got into a PhD program at Stanford, which is like a dream opportunity. Yes. Um, and so I took it and started out my PhD program there and pretty immediately felt a dissonance. I think for a bunch of reasons, but also, you know, it's still tough now, but 12 years ago, 13 years ago, the tech 
industry in electrical engineering just was not very diverse or inclusive. Right. Um, so I was, I think like less than 10% of our class was women. It was very noticeable among the faculty. I just started to feel like I didn't, I couldn't find my place. Yep. Um, and, and got a little bit distraught about what to do next. And at that time encountered a Teach for America recruiter and they seem to always be in the right place at the right time. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> and the opportunity to to teach was really compelling. And so I ended up uh, leaving the program, the PhD program, and signing up for TFA and got placed in Eastern North Carolina, which is uh, somewhere I've never been before. I've never been to the South. I've never been to a very rural community. Um, I thought that I would end up pretty close to the only thing I knew about the area was Duke basketball and UNC <laughs> basketball. And so I was yeah. expecting to be uh, pretty close to those. And I remember when my dad and I were driving, you know, I packed up my car moving across the country. We drove right past Durham and kept on going though, yep, right? <laughs> like another hour and a half. And I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I thought, um, and ended up way out rural Eastern North Carolina, um, just a few miles South of the Virginia border. Right. And the everything about it totally blew me away. Um, it was the first place where I felt truly welcomed by people. Like people really were interested in getting to know me. Nice. Not just working with me. Uh, I met people whose families had been in the community for hundreds of years. And, you know, as a as particularly as a kid of immigrants, like I don't have any deep roots or history here. Right. Um, and so it was totally different to understand or meet people who had that kind of connection to place. And, you know, I didn't see that in the Bay Area either as much. Grew up in New York, just more transient communities. And so I had never been in a place like that. And it was super powerful. Uh, at the same time, I saw some pretty massive racial and geographic disparities among my students. And it did not match up with the history that I had learned. Right. through school and college. And I, you know, given our trust in education, it just kind of felt like a betrayal yep. that, you know, we, we talked about a lot of things related to racism and, you know, vestiges of slavery as being long over, but where I was teaching, it was very clearly connected to the outcomes and experiences my students were having. Right. And I had a really hard time letting that go. Um, so even after teaching, I had this idea that the answers to the challenges were in places like Silicon Valley and ended up, you know, moving back out there. Uh, I was working for Microsoft for a while and did some, some community education work. And in every room I was in, there was a ton of resource and a lot of super capable people trying to solve problems, but they almost never were talking about places like Eastern North Carolina and the solutions that we were discussing were largely things that would not work right. in in our community. And after a while of doing that, it just wore on me. And, and I spent a lot of time connecting with Seth, uh, Seth Soigling, who is somebody else that I had met teaching. He was from Iowa, also new to rural North Carolina, and he ended up in the Bay Area after. And we shared a lot of the same feelings around this. And so that was when he and I started having a conversation about like, what could it look like to take some of these innovative approaches and ways of thinking and resources that people are applying in places like the Bay and connect them with a place like Eastern North Carolina where there's tremendous insight and leadership, but just 
way less investment. Right. Um, it took us many more years of discussion and <laughs> and you know figuring things wow. out and trying and failing. But ultimately, uh, in the summer of 2017, we were able to reconnect with a lot of folks we knew from teaching who were super excited about this idea of doing something different or infusing some new practices um, and managed to get a seed grant. So that was sort of the start of ROI okay. was this initial energy around smashing worlds and connecting some of these innovative practices with our community. Had you seen models elsewhere, Avicii, that you modeled after? Or this, you, it sounds like you brought an intersection of, of strategies, but I was curious as you kind of looked around or you and your early colleagues, did you see anything else or was this truly unique? We were definitely inspired by other models. I think, um, I mean, some examples and a lot of them are, you know, they were urban, but um, Seth had worked for the Tipping Point Foundation in the Bay Area and they had a program called T-Lab. And the okay. idea behind T-Lab was that they, so tipping point is a, they grant money to foundations or to, uh, sorry, nonprofit organizations. Right. And T-Lab would take uh, fellows who were trained in design thinking and innovation and they would do like nine months of embedded research kind of as like the temporary research and development team for these nonprofits. Interesting. Yeah. And that was like one example, but there was, and Seth, you know, was one of those fellows. And so seeing that sort of model where it's like taking folks with this specialized expertise and having them add capacity to organizations that might otherwise be under-resourced in certain ways, but not necessarily saying I can do everything they do better, just, you know, plugging in in this targeted way. That, that was one model that really inspired us. And it, started to beg the questions of like, well, couldn't you also do this in rural? I think we came across fewer rural examples of this, but it's not necessarily because there aren't organizations doing it. But I think like everything else, every, the urban organizations are just so much more well-connected. Like there yeah. isn't, there aren't as many places for, for rural folks doing this work to share with others and things like that. So we didn't have as many models to follow. Um, but since we started doing the work, it's like, we've met more and more folks who are already doing it or doing similar things and been able to partner and learn. Nice. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of urban models that we drew inspiration from. Well, and again, knowing you, you're going to continue to build that network, which will hopefully create even greater opportunities in other rural communities. All right. But you come back to, was it Northampton County? Is that right, Vichy? Uh, you, yeah. So or? Northampton County is where I taught. Um, okay. And we primarily work now in Edgecombe as our home base, which is just south, oh, yeah. and then kind of cover the surrounding. A, a, a uh, factoid, uh, yours truly is from Elizabeth City, Pasquotank County, not too many counties over uh, in wow. eastern North Carolina. So familiar with that communities in which you're serving. And But let me ask you, you get back, what is it, 2017, um, you had a good rapport, obviously, with this community, but what'd they say? What was that literally, hey, my colleagues and I are here from, <laughs> you know, from the Bay Area, we're here to help. What was the reaction like? Yes, it was a, a mix of things. Uh, yeah. I think we encountered one thing that was neat was, and particularly why we ended up basing things in Edgecombe. Um, Edgecombe County specifically had just at that time elected a new sheriff, superintendent, and county manager. Um, okay. And all of them were people of color and had roots in Eastern North Carolina. 
And they were all taking those positions from a place of saying, you know, what we've always done isn't necessarily working. We wanted to do things differently. And so in some ways, the timing was kind of right, where we were doing meetings and connecting with these folks, and they were starting out very open. They were kind of like, yeah, we want to, you know, this feels different or, you know, I don't know about what you're talking about necessarily, but (laughs) we want to be open to this kind of thing. So, you know, show me what you got, basically, like what, tell us what we need to do, show us what you got. And if it's good, we'll, we're down. So I think a lot of it was certainly we had to prove ourselves. I think that was clear. Some people said it implicitly. A couple of people said things like, you know, I've seen folks like you before. I've seen, you know, people who do TFA or whatever, they come here, they say they got all this cool stuff, but then, you know, a year later, they get a job they're offer gone. in DC and they're out. Yep, yep. And so people would say things like, I'm cautiously optimistic about your project. Um, or, you know, I'm, I'm willing to do this meeting, but, uh, you know, I'm not going to commit too much until I know that you're sticking around. Uh, I personally appreciated that. I think it was very honest. Yeah. And it just sort of felt like one of those, you know, challenge accepted moments. We're like, okay, I guess, you know, let's prove ourselves. Yeah, so at least give us a chance. Yeah, like there's a lot of initial openness. And I think it just, we just earn trust over time. The more that we continue to show up or continue to get resources or, you know, we ask people stuff and then process it and then come back and say, hey, you said this and now we learn this. I think just doing all that and keeping people connected over time built a lot of trust. But initially there was definitely openness, but some skepticism. What was the the trauma support model, the initial effort, or did that kind of build as you, you know, heard the voices of the community? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it So when we started this, we it was on our radar. I mean, we learned a lot about adverse childhood experiences and trauma in the Bay, and specifically um, Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris, who's now, now I think she's the Surgeon General of California. Uh, at the time, she was a pediatrician, and she had started a clinic focused on supporting kids through trauma-informed interventions rather than, you know, jumping to medication and some of these other things. And uh, her approach was having a lot of success at the time. And so we were inspired by her to some extent. And so it was on our radar that perhaps a lot of the challenges that schools and other organizations were facing in Eastern North Carolina were rooted in underlying trauma. Right. But we didn't lead with that. Um, so initially when we started, we asked, you know, we partnered with the schools as home base and we said, we wanted to learn from some of the families that experienced the most challenges, just, you know, what their experience has been and what would be most helpful. And they, they helped us build some initial connections and those interviews were very open-ended and what we heard from people without us asking were a ton of stories of trauma, almost every, every challenge or thing, if you looked back upstream enough was rooted in some sort of traumatic event or series of events often perpetuated due to inequitable systems. Um, And so what we, when we synthesized and shared that back out with people, both community members and systems leaders to say, we interviewed this many people and this is the, these are the themes we heard. People really grabbed onto that. They were like, wow, yeah, that's actually not that surprising. I didn't know there was a word for it. I've never heard about trauma, but everything you're saying really resonates and we want to do something about that. So that was when we started explicitly saying, okay, this shared North star is around 
healing from these generational cycles of trauma. Let's move forward from that. Yeah. Excellent. And all right. So you kind of validated the, the purpose, I guess. So how has that translated into actual programs? What, what kinds of things are you working with all ages or focusing on the younger generations or what, what has been your focus? Yeah. So we, um, as part of that listening process, after we, we shared out the findings from the interviews, we did a systems mapping process. Um, and that was a kind of a deeper dive. We learned, we actually followed, um, Acumen has a online course that's free called systems practice. Oh, nice. Uh, um, and so we followed that process along with, you know, all these different community members that they kind of became our design collaborative or community collaborative. Um, and so we'd go back to different folks periodically to do these activities. Basically all of it was try to, to try to elicit the broader underlying patterns driving all of these traumatic challenges people were naming. Right. And that led to this pretty complex set of forces that were going on um, and had been for a long time. And at first it felt a little bit overwhelming. Like, what do you do with something this complicated? But they, there's a concept in systems thinking called leverage where you're looking for like in whatever context you're in, where are there opportunities where a small amount of effort can have outsized impact? And that could be for a bunch of reasons. It could be because a particular person is here, or it could be because something just happened that created an opportunity. Um, maybe there's you know energy already building. Right. So we kind of asked the community, like, where on this map do you see that there's already leverage? And a couple of places really stuck out. One of them was around, um, regardless of who it is in the community, everybody just needs more awareness about what trauma is, how it impacts us, and how that might show up. And it's not necessarily just teachers and nurses and people like that. It's also, you know, parents who can then better understand their children or family members who can better understand each other. So one thing we immediately started doing was offering trainings. Um, Very often, trainings like that are only offered to professionals. And so we partnered with an organization called uh, Resources for Resilience, who's actually based out of Asheville. And they had already developed a kind of community-focused two-day training focused on trauma-informed and resilience-based practices. We started offering that just in the community for free. And so you didn't have to do it through your job. You didn't need to have some sort of credential. Um, and a lot, lot of people, uh, several hundred at this point, attended wow. well that received. training. Yeah. yeah. And from that, we're like building this common language where people are starting to get together and say, okay, these concepts resonate in a bunch of different spaces. So that was kind of the first part. And there was a a true intentional focus, not on a specific age. So I think that question about the age is especially interesting because a lot of times people assume like if you're talking about something like trauma or even, you know, childhood trauma, that the intervention point must then be with the youngest kids. And I think the thing that we came away with from listening to people was that nobody, this all doesn't happen in isolation. Um, So even if you are a kid, oftentimes the leverage point for being able to withstand traumatic events is having really supportive adults around you. And so generational, isn't it? Right. Exactly. And so like, we may be able to experience higher leverage in our community by supporting the teachers and parents and adult coaches, adults who are surrounding children 
with the tools to both manage their own trauma and then better support kids. And in other cases, it might be the kids themselves. So in a lot of ways, the leverage conversation kind of pulled us away from focusing on a specific individual to thinking more about what does the surrounding infrastructure need to look like so that as people move about in our community, they have, they're equipped with more support to navigate these hard things that are going to happen. Um, and so that's how, you know, we kind of started with this training. And then from that, what emerged was trying to help people who are in different organizational positions shift their policies to be less punitive. Because what we noticed was that, especially in rural communities, the public infrastructure is oftentimes the only support that there is, right. or at least the largest. And so a lot of people would experience hard stuff and then turn to or encounter schools, law enforcement, social services, healthcare, and almost always the response they would get would be punitive or isolating yeah. and it would just make things worse. And once the folks in those systems realized they were very much on board with doing things differently. And so we see our role as in helping, helping those institutions understand what, what do those restorative practices look like and then helping them with that change management to actually test and then implement some of those different solutions. Yeah, this is fantastic. And what a wonderful illustration uh, of uh, a programmatic model or models that you have uh, implemented. And again, I, I'm thinking about the different lessons for nonprofit leaders listening. And one, I wonder if you would restate, because it seems like you're, of course, well-versed in the systems and design thinking. And that exercise you described, Ichi, of putting that that whole map uh, of resources in. So I any nonprofit leader could do something like that, right? And then it, your goal is to leverage where the greatest opportunities might occur. Maybe explain that again if you would. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's like a ton of big words. And then ultimately <laughs> exactly. when you boil it down, it's like not that complicated. So yeah, thank you for stopping me and going back <laughs> to it. I'm like, oh, I'm just getting caught in the buzzwords. But uh, yeah, so it's actually, it's just was so surprisingly simpler than we expected. The the first thing that we did was this systems mapping and the basic idea there was that very often we focus on the things we can see right um you know like kids getting suspended from school or people getting you know calls for domestic violence whatever it is substance use um and as a result we put the most resources towards understanding the problem in that moment but actually sometimes if you look a little bit upstream you know it's like the five whys like if you go back and say like well why did all that happen there's very often a much more serious root cause happening that nobody's paying attention to and right. actually if right. we intervene there we might be able to address a lot of stuff at once and so that sounds good but then it's hard to understand well how do you figure out the root cause and so the main activity that we did um, as part of this systems understanding process is called upstream downstream. And it's, it's literally like you ask people, okay, like what are the biggest challenges you see? They might list all of these things that I just said. Right. And then you say, okay, pick one of those. What's everything upstream that leads that to be true. And so like a high number of domestic violence calls, what's everything that leads that to be true. And it might be like lack of access to employment, yeah. uh, unstable housing, you know, people's uh, previous experiences with family or relationships. And so you do, you kind of list all that stuff. And upstream, then you, I guess, right? Yes. In that case, or right. Exactly. So these are all the upstream causes that might lead to that. And right. then, and then you say, okay, assuming there's a lot of domestic violence calls, 
downstream what happens as a result yep. and yep. then we say okay we have like you know overcrowded jail and court systems we might have uh parents who are separated or sharing caregiving responsibilities we might have people having a hard time showing up at work um we have, we have kids who are struggling with having witnessed these uh disputes and then interactions with law enforcement and you have that all written down and if you do that enough times you start to see things that are downstream in one place and upstream for another and those are these vicious cycles right like it's like domestic violence which can lead to substance use which can lead to interactions with law enforcement which can lead to more domestic violence yep. and then you're like yep. whoa um and so any one of those upstream downstream activities is simple like you can do one meeting 10 minutes ask everyone on staff to do upstream downstream for one or two issues that are really difficult and then looking at that sometimes it can illuminate like wow actually the thing that's showing up on all of these is x and that's what we need to work on um and so that's really like the basis we just did upstream downstream like with a ton probably like 300 people um and when we did that certain things really stuck out and those things that kept showing up sort of became the the keys, the things that maybe that if we focus there, we might have more leverage. Um, yeah, it just brought you strategic clarity, right? Is that exactly? Yeah. And and you're right. I, I think so many of our friends in the human services area, it's just overwhelming, right? Because all these intersecting challenges, but that exercise alone seems to me it brought clarity. And then I, I guess programs develop thereafter. I mean, is that fair that you kind of and you, I guess you're continuing to do this kind of systems analysis? Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. So it definitely gave us initial clarity. And I think the other cool thing about it is, you know, individual people are filling out these forms. So when we when we then went back to them and said, hey, we asked 25 people to do this. And what came out was these top two areas we want to focus on. People really felt like, yeah, oh, that makes sense. I did. I wrote that on my paper or, you know, it kind of created this shared investment in, you know, continuing to contribute. And so yeah, basically, like at first, it gave us some ideas of where to start. We could say, okay, people are really naming this lack of awareness, and does you know who wants to go to this training? But then people start digging deeper and deeper. They're like, actually, now that I've been to this training, this is what I'm noticing. And we are trying to kind of continue to follow that momentum to get to to get deeper and deeper to the root. Like none of us knows what the answer is. But it's like as long as we can kind of move in a shared direction through this, new opportunities keep emerging and we're starting to shift the system more and more to be hopefully producing less of the things that we see as problems and producing more of the outcomes that we'd like to see. Yeah. Well, again, thank you for the strategic illustration of the things, all that you were juggling. In fact, I, I, let's go back to that in terms of the lessons and takeaways for our listeners. Uh, you beautifully described kind of the strategic complexity and ways you address that through systems thinking. Talk about what else you had to do to get going. So there's the, I guess, staffing and volunteer and what kind of infrastructure lessons uh, perhaps that you might share now. Yeah. I mean, I think. Definitely this, especially in rural communities, the work is so relational. And I think you kind of touched on it earlier, but it's the community engagement aspect is important, but 
it's hard to do without some sort of system or process. Right. And so actually at first, you know, we were doing a lot of our own organizing. Like we would try to set up a lot of spaces and invite people to come to it or try to host this meeting or this uh, space, community, you know, listening session. And we were finding that a lot of times people had a hard time consistently engaging. Like it was just, you know, life happened, right. too many things on their plate. And later what we realized was that long before we showed up, there were already places and structures in the community where people were gathering to make decisions, provide input, share what they were learning. And we just needed to join those spaces. Um, And so where things really shifted for us was when we started to just become a part of the existing structure for community engagement. We would go to the you know, monthly healthcare task force meetings or the regular town council meetings or the parent groups that met every Wednesday, Bible study, um, and just, you know, listen and share and become a part of that fabric. And, you know, we did ultimately create the community accountability board specific to us, but it was like one thing fitting in with everything else. So I think a, a really big part of the community mobilization aspect was kind of trying to build on the infrastructure that's already there instead of assuming that like it needs to all be created from scratch. Yeah. Great point. And so again, I think we know some organizations come in and kind of parachute in and, and expect the community to come to them. And so it sounds like you were very intentional about going to where they already congregated. And of course, I'm sure that increased credibility and then what is is Vici the 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 board you described? Do you have both a governance board and community advisory, or what is your kind of governance structure? I guess. Yeah, we're actually in a pretty fortunate situation. So we are, in terms of traditional, you know, nonprofit governance, we are fiscally sponsored by a much larger nonprofit um, called Area L AHEC, and they have been in the community for a long time doing a lot of healthcare work. And so when we first got started. And I would kind of suggest this to anyone who's just getting started to at least consider the nonprofit paperwork and bureaucracy and everything just felt super intimidating. And (laughs) we were, you know, coming at it with teaching backgrounds or engineering backgrounds, but not like accounting expertise and things like that. So they had all that already set up. And so they, they also were getting more and more interested in the trauma informed work. So they kind of, took us under their umbrella and have been since then um, Nice handling a lot of the official stuff. And technically, you know, we sort of report to their board and uh, you know, we're almost like a program under them, Okay. but then for our more practical day-to-day decision-making expertise, we have this community board, which operates more like a, maybe an advisory board. They don't have fiduciary responsibility or anything, um, but they do have agreements. So we have an MOU with all of them that outlines, you know, these are the meetings that you come to. These are the types of input that we're looking for. Here's your role. Here's the processes that we will use for decision-making. And we do share a lot of the things you might share with the traditional board. We're sharing strategic updates. We're sharing goals. We're often sharing some level of financial information. Um, So there's some overlap, but they don't need to be in the weeds quite as much as a traditional board would need to be on some of those legal or fiscal aspects that um, don't really fit in the scope of their expertise per se. Yeah, makes perfect sense. But you are accountable, aren't you, to the community through 
that information sharing, which I think, again, speaks to the positive response you're getting. And uh, so you anticipated, I guess, my question, because you've got some governance and infrastructure built in the AHEC relationship, but are, are, what is your responsibility for funding or fundraising? How does that impact uh, the work you're doing? Yeah, so we do primarily do our own fundraising. Um, although we have collaborated with AHEC before on grants, and I think also it's it gives some credibility. Sometimes funders will say, you know, we're not sure an organization of your size will be able to handle this amount of funding, which in general, I think is um, not super fair and excludes excludes some people from accessing funding. But in our case, it does help to say, well, actually, we have this fiscal sponsor whose budget is 10 times the size of ours or whatever it is. And therefore, you right, know, they can, they right. can help us manage it. So in that regard, you know, they're super supportive. They have been very helpful in in introducing us to funders, helping us navigate these things. But we largely do our own, you know, prospecting and relationship building and grant writing and all that stuff um, to try to to try to figure out our fundraising. Well, and talk about that. How have you approached it? Obviously, rural communities like those that you're in don't have necessarily the resource, although there are some, right? And I'm sure you're identifying them. But yeah, how what has been your approach to identifying and cultivating new funders? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty wild. I was just reading a report uh, from Bridgespan about uh, rural majority Black communities in the South and how disproportionately underfunded they are. Um, and so there is still, I think it's like 2 or 3% of all national philanthropy goes to uh, communities like ours, even though something like 25% of the population lives in the South. Um, and so right. there is like a major disparity um, and there are, particularly for us more so on the local and state level, really supportive funders who recognize the needs in Eastern North Carolina. And so our, the first funder that originally supported us, um, was a, or is a family in based in Eastern North Carolina, who very specifically focuses on giving back to education initiatives in the region. And so they really took a bet on us, um, they had funded Teach for America in the past and some other, you know, things in Edgecombe County and stuff. So they, yeah, took the first bet on us. And I think after that, it was more a matter of starting to show some results. And as we were demonstrating the relationships that we had built and the types of the type of engagement we're getting, I think that led to some other state level funders getting bought in. Um, now we're trying to make more of the transition or trying to at least include or get on the radar of some of the more national funders. And I think we're starting to face some of the challenges that that probably other rural fund, uh, nonprofit leaders face, which is just making the case for the importance of the investment when it may appear that the scale of impact isn't as large as yeah, it but, might be in an urban place. Yeah, right. But the qualitative uh, improvements you're making are significant, but you're right. Sadly, there are some funders, I think, that just are looking for greater numbers. Um, and but, and I guess that leads to the question, Vichy, I mean, where do you want to take this? Um, you could obviously, there's always more work to be done in the communities you serve right now, but I'm sure every, <laughs> in every direction you look around you, there's another county right there that could sure use your help. What do you do? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're kind of in an important transition point of decide, you know, we've demonstrated or validated a fair amount of success with 
being able to tap into the incredible insights that already exist in our community. Um, but then, yeah, very, I mean, we're getting a lot of interest from other communities. We get a lot of questions about like, are you going to replicate or scale to a bunch of other places around the country? Um, and I think we've really paused to ask ourselves the question of what growth or scale really means. Right. And one thing that's clear is it took a lot of really specific relational work to get to the place that we are in Eastern North Carolina. And I still think there is so much more to learn and work on. And so our goal really is to continue to go deeper and continue to understand like what are the root causes that are still in place and what are the different, you know, innovative programs or approaches we can pilot together to try to move the needle on that. Um, but what I also, or what we also realize is that there are tons of other organizations similar to ours in rural communities across the country who are also building those relationships and working to support changes that may look really similar to the challenges that we've seen. So we're trying to work on this idea of like open source sharing, basically, where yeah, we're, yeah. we're kind of documenting or codifying the things we've done that have been able to work and, you know, the conditions under which they've worked and then finding those networks to share them with other places and say, hey, if you also face this problem, you know, would you be interested in partnering with us? We can support you to pilot this and maybe get some data and contribute to just the overall knowledge base of like, what are the things that seem to work collectively across rural communities? And maybe that knowledge can also benefit urban places and yeah. you know, just sort yeah. of start to contribute more to the conversation. So I think in the sense of knowledge sharing, we really do want to grow um, and build those partnerships while continuing to maintain a local focus so that we can get to the deeper insights that I think we haven't quite reached yet. Well, it's fantastic. And that's, again, one of the reasons I'm delighted to share the story of ROI, because you're right, maybe there are others listening, who knows, in North Carolina, in the Southeast or across the country, who are, are wrestling with some of these same kind of rural challenges. And certainly the technology exists, as you know, that maybe that's the way we can kind of bring these communities uh, forward. Um, so many lessons here, BG. Uh, we, we could have this conversation go on for a long time, but I you you I've got a list of of ideas I think nonprofit leaders could take with them. Is there any other kind of final advice that you have uh, you, you're still experiencing this real time, aren't you? But anything else that you'd want our listeners to know that are maybe also pondering nonprofit leadership? Yeah, I just think ultimately there is so much wisdom that already exists in people with lived experience and people with proximity in the communities. Um, and there has never been a time that I have regretted clarifying or seeking input or asking um, a question to a community member. And so I think taking that time and like building it in to make sure that even if you think you're like 99% sure this yeah, is the yeah. way forward, just like creating that little catch to double check, um, I think can add a ton, like both in terms of relationship building, but also learning. Um, and so that's something that I think, especially as organizations grow and stuff, we often lose touch of uh, touch with, but I would recommend continuing to have that at the center. Yeah, you're such a good champion uh, of that voice, making sure the voice of those you serve is is uh, present. And I'm, I'm encouraged. We've got a long way to go, but 
I've had a number of conversations with funders recently who seem to be more sensitive to that. In other words, I'm seeing literally in the grant application, they're like, all right, how do you know that the voice of those you serve is represented? Because historically, right, Vici, we, we hadn't done that. Uh, and that's something. Are you seeing some progress on that front? Yeah, I mean, you're right. I'm definitely seeing it on the grant applications. Um, and I think it's becoming more, much more acceptable to even write that into the budget. Like we have a line item for our community board because, of course, uh, it's difficult. We can't ask community members to do stuff for free. Yeah, um, right, and so right, we, right. you know, provide stipends for their time, food, materials. And that is something that's okay to write for the most part. So I think in those ways, like we're definitely seeing a shift. Um, and a push I would have, particularly for, for funders and philanthropy, um, and I've written a little bit on this um, in the past, is, and many of them are already doing this, so it doesn't apply to everybody, but yeah, for, right, for right. philanthropists to also ask themselves and foundations to ask themselves how they are including the voice of the communities they hope to impact in their decision-making and on their boards. Um, right and I, I'm, I see some examples of that, but I think there is uh, quite a lot of progress that can still be made on that front as well. Yep, well put, indeed. And maybe your voice is going to help uh, bring some of this awareness that's necessary. And again, I'm delighted to share it and grateful for your sharing your story and the work you're doing um, in Eastern North Carolina, but certainly something that's going to influence uh, folks everywhere. Um, all right, before we talk about where people can find out how to get to you and learn more about the great work you're doing, you know this was coming, a book uh, recommendation. I've asked every guest. I wonder if you might share something among the many I'm sure you've read, but is there one you might uh, zero in on? Yeah, I was going to say, I'm going to cheat and give two, but it'll just be two. Um, so one of them is Winners Take All by Anand Giridharadas. Yes, yes, I, yes. Yeah, every time I've read it multiple times, it always resonates. Um, and then for more of the trauma-informed take, My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Menachem. Super powerful um, and pretty tactical insights on generational trauma and particularly racialized trauma. Uh, both of my daughters brought or winners take all. Is that the official title? I, I think yes. Yeah. Um, but delighted to lift that up and lift both of your books up. So uh, no cheating at all. Uh, we'll accept, <laughs> we'll accept a double answer there. Um, and, and again, knowing you're very busy, um, but I can only imagine some of our listeners are going to want to certainly connect with you and learn more about your work. So where would you like uh, them to go to find out more? Yeah, so to learn more about the organization ROI, uh, ruralopportunity.org is our website. And it's got more about our story as well as um, opportunities to learn, you know, to see some of the open source stuff we're already putting out there about the programs we've done. So really excited to connect with anyone who might be doing similar work. Um, and then you can also find me on LinkedIn. Um, that's probably the best way to connect personally. Fantastic. We will put it all in the show notes and I will encourage our listeners to check it out. Uh, so they can learn more about you, the work you're doing, and the other resources. And again, kudos to you for the open source kind of approach you're taking uh, so that it can indeed help communities everywhere. Vici, for that and everything else, thank you again for joining me on the path. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Vici as much as I did and learned a lot from her journey and innovative approach despite limited resources. Her passion 
combined with practical strategies really demonstrates the impact one person can have when dedicated to their community's well-being. Now, for more information about this episode, remember it was number 231. Just go to the podcast page at PattonMcDowell.com. There you can learn more about Vici and all of the great work she's doing through the Rural Opportunity Institute. And if you found this episode inspiring, please consider sharing it with someone else who's also on the path to nonprofit leadership. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to our podcast. Simply visit PattonMcDowell.com, navigate to the podcast page, and click on the follow button. Subscribing ensures you won't miss any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday. Now, while on our website, you can also explore the episodes button at the top of that same page. It will allow you to browse through thumbnails of our most popular episodes or search by a topic or guest name. Thanks once again for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now. Keep up the great work for causes that are most meaningful to you. And I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week. I'll see you next time on The Path.